0: I just wanted to speak a little bit tonight about uh, the practice of sila or conscious conduct which we always mention briefly at the beginning of a retreat you know we run down the five precepts or the eight precepts and I think it's for myself over the years of my uh, commitment to practice I've been finding that working with awareness of my speech and actions to be such a deep and profound aspect of practice and such a rich path of understanding that uh, I I would just like to talk a little bit about it because I, for myself, have found it very inspirational and also uh, very subtle and quite difficult in many ways. And um, I think it's very important. So we'd just like to talk about it a little more before we begin the retreat formally tomorrow night. Joseph mentioned last night that practice, really, our meditation practice can come from the foundation of loving-kindness that it really can be a practice that is rooted in joy. Not every moment joy, but really rooted in loving-kindness and joy. This is how I relate to ethical conduct or sila, often translated as morality. That it's a a practice that's rooted in loving-kindness, in our understanding really of the oneness of all beings. It's both an expression of that understanding and in our continued mindful attention to our speech and actions, it serves to deepen that understanding. So we we often speak about sila as being the foundation for the more formal meditation practice, Really, I feel it's much more than that. It both opens the gateway to liberating understanding in itself, as well as being the expression of our understanding. As most of you probably know, the Buddha spoke of his Eightfold Path, eight areas of our life that really are an expression Expression of an awakened life, and these three areas are wisdom. There's eight, eight steps, but it's divided into three areas: those being wisdom, wise action, and the so-called samadhi group, which really deals with meditative aspects of mind. And well, a lot of what I say tonight, I'm speaking quite personally. My, from, from my own experience of meditation retreats and working with silas. I'm not claiming to speak, you know, as, as uh, speaking for the Theravada tradition per se. I'm just speaking from my own experience. But um, I felt a lot that, as we, we've always acknowledged that sila is important, but for me often in the past there was this feeling of, yes, yeah, sila is important, It's an aspect of the Eightfold Path. So just we'll take the five precepts or we'll take the eight precepts. And, you know, of course, it's important not to harm. But let's then just get on to the real business of doing the meditation. That's where the understanding is going to come from. That's what's really important. And we just put up with sila as kind of, you know, a necessary. And, of course, it's an important byproduct. And I feel that that has, that attitude does us such a disservice because, in a way, it it shuts out such a rich area of life. I mean, it's all of life, really, our speech and our actions, our intentions. And when we somehow think that it's just rules to follow and don't really have the same care, the same interest, the same willingness to learn, from paying attention to our speech and actions, we somehow think that, well, freedom isn't really going to come from paying attention to this. It's going to come from getting, you know, certain states of mind and meditation. I mean, this is a little bit of a gross dichotomy I'm creating, but it's just a way to try and explain a feeling I've had over time of somehow not giving Uh, attention to ethical conduct really the, the profound importance that it can have in our understanding. And it also, when I relate to sila, when I relate to paying attention to conduct as just as viable a path, an opening to freedom as formal meditation, it it opens up an area of such beauty in in all of life in all of action it makes appreciation of whatever's happening in this moment so much more possible and so much deeper sometimes i th- i think that for me some of this sense of separation came about because when we first were bringing this style of meditation to this country from Asia is sort of taken out of context. The way that we do ten-day or three-month meditation retreats is sort of separated from the rest of our life and out of the context of the society that we're living in here. Whereas in Thailand, for example, where I was a nun for a year, the meditation is very much rooted In the context of people's lives, sila, samadhi, and wisdom, panya, are really integrated in people's understanding. And people come to the monasteries daily or weekly to take the five precepts and they go home again. They might come once a month or so and take eight precepts and spend the night and stay and do do meditation for a night, or they might stay for some days and do meditation and then return again to their life. But there's not such a sense of dichotomy, such a sense of separation. And even when doing the formal meditation and returning again to their daily lives, there's a real appreciation of Sila as being the groundwork from which the meditation is coming. And, of course, we have a strong sense of ethical conduct in our society, but it's, it's not so kind of seamlessly woven together with the meditation. And so it's been easy, especially when I first started practicing for me, it was easier to go and just do a retreat and, you know, have good moral conduct at the time of the retreat, but somehow not quite get it that it was also just as important how I acted and how I paid attention to my mind outside of the retreat. Because the culture that I went back to had no understanding of what I was doing, and so there wasn't a sense of support for that. We had to kind of do it on our own. So I think, at least for me, over the years, I've been, it happens quite naturally, I think, but appreciating more and more the profound depth of understanding that can come from this practice of sila and how interwoven, really, paying attention to our speech, our actions, our intentions of mind, is with the growing of understanding, is with the development of the qualities of mind, of energy and concentration and mindfulness. They all come together. What I find interesting when I think about the way the Buddha laid out the Eightfold Path, is that wise action is not the first step. The Eightfold Path begins with wise understanding. And the second step is wise thought or intention. And it's then that it moves into wise action. So that really, to me, what I hear in that is that our understanding is what informs how we think our intentions of mind and that is what our actions arise from. And so you can see from this that working with sila, with conscious conduct, is not a matter of blindly following some set of rules, but that as we begin to awaken to the nature of reality, to the nature of our own existence, even just a little, the first initial recognition perhaps of impermanence, the sense of non-separation or connectedness perhaps, whatever a beginning of understanding is, this then is what can give rise to the beginnings of our caring about our conduct, to the beginnings of caring about how we act and move in the world, to paying attention and seeing that how we act, how we speak, affects everyone else that we come into contact with. We begin to see that our actions are the natural effect of our understanding. And so that the, the whole path is really very intertwined. I mean, A simple example. We begin to notice the nature of cause and effect. That if I act in a certain way, it has this effect. For example, if I tend to lie, if I tend not to be truthful, and I begin to notice then that people don't trust me. It's quite natural. And then that that doesn't feel very good to me. I want to be trusted. I mean, this is obvious. But this is a result of understanding cause and effect. And actually, when we begin to understand cause and effect, that's the beginning of seeing anatta, a sense of no-self because when we're seeing that this cause brings this effect, this effect makes me feel like this, we're seeing that we're not separate autonomous beings, that there's a cause and an effect and another cause and another effect, and there's no way to be separate, that we're all one. That then gives rise to the caring and the interest to continue to pay attention to our actions or our speech, perhaps then I tried to be more truthful. And that being more truthful would tend to lead to more harmony, both outwardly and inwardly, which allows for more space to really pay attention to the fact that, ah, oh, there is a connection between all of us. The sense then of understanding of oneness and the sense of harmony grows deeper through the behavior. It's like a cycle it just keeps spiraling deeper and deeper. So I know for me in the beginning, I did try to follow the precepts, but it was more out of a sense of, well, I guess it sounds good, obviously intellectually I don't want to harm people, I'd like to be a good person, basically good motivation, but but more a sense of should. And what's been happening more and more is that it moves in my experience from being a sense of should to my relationship to actions and speech and feels more like a movement of my heart. That the actions become an expression of greater harmony that I feel inwardly. And also, I get, uh, I get more immediate feedback from myself When I'm not acting in harmony, when I, well, I don't like to really use the word break a precept, because that, I mean, that, that makes sense, but it sounds so like this is a rule and you broke it and you're bad and you're guilty. And this really is not about guilt. None of this is about guilt or judgment. It's about being interested and being able to pay attention in order to learn, in order to grow, not to make ourselves bad simply to see what happens. So I've been finding that as my relationship to working with conscious conduct seems to come more from my heart, more from a willingness to learn, when I blow it, so to speak, the feedback is so much more immediate and in that way it actually serves again to deepen my understanding, or a small example, but a common one. If I'm not paying much attention and I say something kind of abrasive that is cutting or harsh, and that can happen quite easily, usually now, as soon as it's out of my mouth, I don't have to wait for some kind of feedback from the other person, but I viscerally feel like a sense of separation, a sense of contraction in the heart or the mind. And right away, that action has contributed in a way, the effect is in that moment, I feel a greater sense of separation. But because there's this, uh, you know, the willingness just to pay attention, rather than having that sense of separation turn into an even greater sense of separation through blaming and judging and, oh, what a horrible person I am, or having to justify myself, just noticing that, being willing to bring this non-judging, mindful attitude to what happens, the the sense of the fact that we're really not separate, the fact that how I act affects others, that I can't separate my pain from another's pain, becomes more clear. It becomes more of a visceral experience. So for example, as soon as I've said something harsh, I actually suffer myself. Even before that other person says, wow, that really hurt. Why did you say that? And sometimes they'll say that to me and sometimes they won't. But what becomes clear is that that action coming from, not from non-harming, a harming, harsh speech, has brought in that moment of pain, a pain that can't be separated, whether it's me or the other person. And so even by blowing it, it can be an occasion to again experience the oneness of all of us. Actually, Saida Upandita, when he speaks about the working with the precepts, I've often heard him say that they... Acting for the precepts is acting from our understanding. It's an expression of the oneness of all beings. So it's really a very, very powerful practice. The Buddha said, and I I like this a lot, he says that by protecting others through our care with non-harming actions, we protect ourselves. Protect ourselves from suffering and pain. And similarly, by protecting ourselves, by being careful with our actions so that we don't suffer the unpleasant consequences, by protecting ourselves we're simultaneously protecting others. Again, no difference. So what really helps us to understand how to protect ourselves and others and this is just really a very short synopsis because we'll talk about this a lot and in much more detail over the course of the three months but really understanding that when we talk about conscious conduct of speech or action of what is skillful that we're really talking about the skillfulness this is a morality of intention of the every thought or speech or action is, has a volitional force, impetus that drives it, that makes it happen, and that this motivation, this intention that brings about the thought, the speech, or action is seen as skillful or unskillful, depending on what mental factors, what qualities of mind are present feeding that intention, so to speak. So, for example, uh, an action or speech would be seen as skillful if its the intention is associated with the mental factors of, say, compassion or wisdom, equanimity, loving-kindness, many. And, of course, unskillful if it's associated with you know, rage or greed or hatred or cruelty, confusion. You can see how subtle this can be. Because what it means is that the same action can be coming from very different motivations. And it's the motivation that determines the skillfulness of the action. And it's the motivation that we can work with that we can pay attention to. In a way, we have no control whatsoever over the results of our actions. An action can be performed with the deepest sincerity and very skillful intentions, and the results might look very harmful, or might actually be harmful. An example that is given in the suttas Is of a blind bhikkhu, a blind monk, who was doing walking meditation. And as he was walking in the forest, he was walking on all these ants and killing them. And some of the other monks saw this and they went running to the Buddha. I have to say there seem to be a lot of suttas where monks are running to the Buddha and kind of tattling on so-and-so did this and and so-and-so did that. It sounds like it's no different from today. Anyway, so they went and said, you know, he's supposed to be free, he's supposed to be enlightened, and he's killing ants, and uh, clearly that's a precept that we don't kill, so what's the story? And that's when the Buddha explained that being blind, he had absolutely no way of knowing he was killing ants, and his intentions in the walking meditation were completely pure. And so that his action was not unskillful. You see, it's very interesting. And this is why I find it so fascinating when we begin to open up to a really deep commitment to explore how do we relate in our speech and action to ourselves and to the world. Because it requires a great deal of honesty with ourselves, also a great deal of mindfulness To even be able to tell honestly what the intentions, what the motivations are. And to be willing, mindfulness means a clear attention, but it also means a non-judging, accepting quality of attention. So that when, for example, we see ourselves doing something that's really disgusting, we can just see it for what it is and explore it without adding a whole extra load of self-hatred and judgment and guilt, because that doesn't help us to learn. So, Sila is so much more profound than just a rule of five or eight or 227 rules that we follow. It's not just a list. I feel for myself when I am committed paying attention, when I am committed to working with my relationship to my speech and conduct, and it takes a huge amount of energy, I certainly can't say every moment I feel actively committed to working on it, but when I am, I I really feel that it's it's an actual practice of oneness. It really is practicing loving kindness and compassion. It really to me feels like a practice of freedom when I relate with real integrity and commitment. So I'd just like to briefly share, just again, this is personal, some of my reflections and some of other people's on just the basic five precepts, just to kind of showing, sharing with you how subtle it can be, and I'm sure my just mentioning a few things will bring up many more ideas in your own mind, in your own experience, and, and also I think how exciting and how interesting it can be to explore these nuances of intention, of behavior and speech. As Thich Nhat Han, you know, the Vietnamese Zen master, he talks a lot, a lot about working with the precepts. And he says uh, that really to see them as guidelines, as directions in which we incline the mind. It's essential that we not begin by expecting to be perfect. And I, I, I know for myself and a lot of people I talk to, we tend to have that tendency to right away think that we should be perfect. I'm going to observe the five precepts, of not killing, not stealing, not harming with my sexuality, not lying or using harsh speech, not taking intoxicants to cloud the mind, and right away I'm going to do it all perfectly. It's really difficult. As Thich Nhat Hanh says, we try all our lives to understand and practice the precepts better. I really think it's like that. The more I pay attention, the more I see subtler and subtler ways that I that I haven't been paying attention before, that I am not coming from non-harming. And you can see why mindfulness is so necessary. Thich Nhat Hanh, again, he says, mindfulness is the fundamental precept. Think of the precepts as the manifestation of mindfulness. Because when you are mindful, you're responsible. And when then the precepts, the list as a list, are not needed to dictate your behavior. And I think that's really true. If I'm really paying attention, if I'm really present and open in a moment, I don't do something that's harmful to myself or another person. When I'm not paying attention, or I'm feeling very disconnected, then sometimes having the precepts as a guideline can be a really helpful reference point for me. Okay, so not killing. At first, that seems pretty clear. Most of us probably don't kill other human beings. We probably don't kill animals. But it gets very tricky especially if you expand it to non-harming. But even not killing animals, can any of us do that perfectly? How about when we're digging in the garden? How about when there's an infestation of cockroaches, which is something that we've been dealing with here for years? How about when once the house across the street that we, as IMS, owned, we were renting it to tenants and they had an infestation of fleas so bad that literally I walked in the house and walked out 30 seconds later and my legs were just black with fleas. How can you ask tenants to live in a house like that? What do you do? It's really very complicated. Robert Aitken, the Zen Roshi in Hawaii, said once that the practice of peace and harmony is peace and harmony. It's not some technique that's designed to induce them. In other words, we don't try to do something in order to become peaceful and harmonious, but it's being in this moment, as Thich Nhat Hanh says, being peace, and then acting from that space. When I was first uh, at the temple in Thailand where I ordained as a nun, the first night I was there I had really long hair. You just sleep on the floor in these kutis, these little huts. And I woke up and I just had ants all in my hair. There was just like a stream of ants crossing the kuti that there was no way to get rid of. I didn't know what to do. I was new in Thailand and I ran to the abbot who's a very well-known abbot in Thailand. Actually, actually, to his assistant. And I said, what do I do? You know, how can I get rid of them? And I was so shocked. He went into the kuti and came back and handed me a can of Raid. I was just blown away. So, you know, there's questions. There's no easy answers. And at that time, I wanted easy answers. Now I've come to love it that there aren't easy answers, because if there were easy answers, then I could just tune out again, just follow the list of what to do, and I'd stop paying attention. But because there aren't easy answers, it means I have to really be aware. I have to be connected. I have to care about what I'm doing. I have to care about other beings. I have to care about the environment. I have to be awake. And so working with the precepts really helps me in this way to stay awake and to wake up again when I fall asleep. (coughs) So maybe I feel, and I think that's actually, it's rather presumptuous to say that, okay, I understand about not killing, you know, animals out of anger. But what about out of indifference? If I don't have my glasses on and I step in the shower, I can't tell what's on the bottom of the shower. I can't tell if it's a little piece of lint or if it's a little ant. And if I don't take the trouble to bend down and check before I turn on the water and it is an ant, then I've just washed it away. And because I'm aware of that, because that's happened more than once, it's not like the blind bhikkhu who really didn't know. It's more an action that's coming out of delusion or out of laziness. And so, again, how do I relate to the precept of non-harming? How much effort am I willing to put in, even though I don't consciously want to harm? And it just keeps expanding and expanding when we think about it as non-harming. I think a lot, and I don't know the answer, about the violence in our popular entertainment culture, And what effect does that have on my mind and what effect does that have on other people's minds? And if I pay to go to a really violent movie, then in a way I'm supporting that. And is that contributing to the violence in our culture? I don't know. But if I think it might, but I decide to go anyway just for entertainment, what is that saying about my commitment to non-harming? I just heard on the news, I guess it was last night. You know how they've been. Uh, there's been a lot of stuff in the news about different rap songs and the violence in them and all. And there was uh, some, some new song that they're having a controversy about. And it again, it's talking about killing cops. And some young guy was driving in a stolen car and a, a cop stopped him and pulled him over and walked up to the car and the kid killed him. And in the tape deck was this song that was talking about killing cops. And the kid said, well, you know, I was all jacked up from listening to this song and that really is what made me kill him. I mean, who knows? But then I have to wonder, what am I doing that might be contributing to that? And what I found is this doesn't bring on more guilt if I'm really trying to look honestly, but what it does is help me become so much more attuned to our oneness, to our interconnectedness. I was just in Germany, and I don't know if you've heard, there's a lot of violence going on between different cultures, really, is what it is. A lot of young people who are out of work are attacking refugees, they call them asylum seekers, in different parts of Germany. And, um, you know, how, how much of this stems from the sense of not perceiving our oneness, that somehow this group of people is other than me. Or I just got a letter in the mail asking for money and talking about various episodes of the same kind of racial violence. Asians against Latinos, whites against blacks taking place in this country. Just lots of isolated little incidents. And so then I have to look at myself and see, okay, when I shut off my sense of oneness enough that I don't bother to look down and see if it's an ant, that might seem really minor. But what's the effect in my consciousness if I pay attention at that moment and I notice that? It's as if the consciousness contracts, the heart shuts, there's a feeling of separation. And it might sound silly, but I really have to reflect on, does that have an effect in the culture? When I'm contracted like that, when I'm not willing to take an extra little bit of energy not to harm, how is that energy reflected in the culture, and what's my responsibility? How am I contributing to the greater violence that's taking place in our cultures? You can see it just can expand actually, indefinitely, and we each have our own areas in which we can look at this. The same with the second, not taking what is not given, which is another way of saying not stealing, but a little broader. And again, it's looking at it as intention. What's our intention? It's much more than just not stealing. And even just on that level, You know, blatantly, none of us are probably going to go into each other's rooms and riffle through people's stuff looking for money, you know, or maybe chocolate as the retreat goes on. (laughs) But it's much broader than that. For instance, when I'm in the bathroom, oh, look at that neat shampoo. I've been wanting to use that for a long time. I'm sure that person wouldn't mind. Probably they wouldn't. But what's the motivation in that, you know? If we flip it from the a sort of negative way of saying it, of not stealing, not taking what's not given, and given it a more positive aspect, it would be really coming from a sense of inner contentment. Not just abstention from unskillful action. Dogen, the great Zen master, said, the self and the world are just as they are. The gate of emancipation is open. When we're like that, when the self and the world are just as they are, a sense of deep inner contentment, there's no thought of neediness even. If you saw that shampoo, you'd oh, that's a nice shampoo. The thought of wanting it doesn't even arise. In that state, the gate of emancipation is open. To me, this is really the deepest expression of this second precept. And can this be enough for our life? A deep appreciation of what is just as it is without needing something more. Aitken Roshi, again talking about stealing and how much stealing comes from this sense of inner poverty the sense of lack of contentment. And he's talking not just about stealing objects, sense of inner poverty that we need more objects, but how much, he says, do we steal from ourselves? Do we steal peace from ourselves when we get lost in some gaining idea, even in meditation, when we try to make ourselves someone else or try to gain some other state that we don't have, in that moment, we're stealing peace from ourselves. We're stealing from ourselves the possibility of opening to what is true because we're so busy reaching for something else, the sense of inner poverty. It says in the Tao Te Ching, If you realize that you have enough, you are truly rich. Be content with what you have. Rejoice in the way things are. When you realize there is nothing lacking, the whole world belongs to you. When we're living with that understanding, when you realize that nothing is lacking, it makes no sense to want anything. That's the sense of the self and the world are just as they are. That's when the gate of emancipation is open. And when I continue to reflect, though, on stealing, again, it broadens from just my own immediate action to how I am as part of society. And I I question a lot if... um, is stealing part of our economic system. I mean, the whole kind of capitalist system is set up in order to sort of manufacture more wants for us. If you look at the ads on TV or in the magazine, look at ads for kids' toys. I mean, the whole focus of them is to make the kids want that toy and go out and get it. To I look in the New York Times magazine and they uh, have like all these different perfume ads all these new perfumes you know do, does the world need a new perfume and then somehow you can find I can find myself oh yeah I really would like to have that perfume I mean, where is that coming from and what what kind of society is it that that runs on manufacturing more wants I got this from the Union of Concerned Scientists talking about environmental crisis. But this hit me. Energy consumption in the United States, for example, is so high that the 250 million Americans consume as much as all 4 billion people in developing nations. Now That's amazing. We consume as much as 4 billion other people in the world when I read that, I can't think of it as anything other than taking what is not freely given. And that by my actions, when I turn the heat up in my house and I keep it really warm, I'm stealing from other people in the world. When I come back from England, or I come back from Germany. I mean, England's a good example. It's really cold, and they really keep the heat down. Once I was there in December, it was it was really cold. The house had a big meeting that the 1st of December to decide whether to turn on the heat. And they decided to turn it on, and they kept it at 58 degrees. We wouldn't dream of that, you know. I mean, it was hell. It was really hard. I don't know if I could live like that. But it just... That kind of statistic is just enough to make me look. Every time I turn on the heat, it's an act. I don't mean I shouldn't have heat, but what's my intention? What's my motivation? Am I aware of my connectedness to everyone else in the world when I turn the heat up really high? Or if I uh, decide to eat a hamburger... Am I aware that we are so interconnected that that hamburger has something to do with the fact that people are starving in the Horn of Africa? And I mean that quite literally. And I don't mean it to bring up guilt about having a hamburger, but to really open my awareness to the depth of our interconnectedness. And it becomes really not a practice of guilt or a practice of feeling bad about everything that I do, you know, that other people in the world don't have. But that the choices that I am able to make to let go of some things really come out of love, out of the feeling of our oneness, and that with those choices the, the visceral experience of our oneness deepens, and it's actually a practice of great joy and of deepening love and compassion and connection with the rest of the world. And when I shut off from that, and I just get back in my own little routine and a sense of disconnection, that's a real feeling of suffering. The openness to how we're all connected, even though it might make our life more difficult on the outward physical level, is actually so much richer. So I, don't wanna, I just want to briefly mention the other three because as you, you can see from the ones I've talked about how you can just look so carefully at our intentions and how subtle it gets. The third, not misusing sex, honoring our commitments to ourselves and to each other. Of course, here, you don't have much chance to act on the sexual energy, but we can pay attention to where the impulses are coming from simply to learn. Do we use our sexual energy from love and commitment? Do we use it from fear, from neediness, from exploitation, for a sense of personal power, for self-image, whatever? Really to learn and to see how we affect and affect each other. And when we talk about not hurting people through our sexual activities, I always like to put in remember that you're one of the people involved, too. It also means not hurting yourself. The fourth, working with wise, non-harming speech. Sometimes, for me anyway, I think this is the most complex and difficult area. It's so easy to stray off into harmful or frivolous speech. There's four areas that are spoken of. Not lying, not using harsh or abusive speech, not using speech to divide, kind of backbiting to cause division among people, and not just spending time in idle, frivolous chatter. You can see that covers (laughs) an awful lot of our speech. I want to talk just again a little bit about Just the complexities of the first one, not lying. Which seems, you know, like I I felt, I don't lie. You know, I don't have any intention to lie and no need to lie. But once um, a friend and I were leading a week-long, called a sandwich retreat in the city, where people would get together and sit in the evening and then everyone would go to work in the day and then come back the next evening. And we were working with right speech. So this one day, we were just all going to... Focused that day on not lying, just paying attention. And I think we all went out feeling a little cocky, like, well, we don't lie, but we'll pay special attention today. When we came back to talk about it that night, every single one of us had at some point caught ourselves in a lie. And sometimes it was like hours later before we realized it. It was really fascinating. And they were subtle. Some people found that they were lying through their actions when trying to give the impression that they were working really hard at work when actually they were completely spacing out. Someone else found that they were lying in order to protect someone else, or lying to have a particular self-image, um, or they had a job in sales, and they found that in just doing their job, trying to sell, they were, found themselves telling lies. It was really fascinating to see. And then I started paying more attention and seeing how many little exaggerations I might make in describing something. And what's the intention behind that? You know, for self-image, to give a certain impression of myself, or I don't really want to admit how many times I've done something stupid, so I sort of scale it down to about half. Just paying attention to stuff like that. In retreats, I think this commitment to honesty in looking at our own minds, our own motivations, is one of the most powerful parts of the meditation practice for me. Because um, I see how much, just in paying attention to what's happening in my own mind, not even that I have to tell anybody about it, just to observe it for myself, how much of what's going on I'll find I somehow don't want to quite acknowledge. It's too painful, or it's too difficult, or it's too disgusting, or somehow I, I can't believe this is coming up again after 20 years. And to just really be honest with that, that that's okay. Honesty is so powerful. It's said of the all the different perfections of a Buddha, the different qualities of mind that... The Bodhisattva, who's going to become the Buddha, cultivates over eons and eons of lifetimes. That truthfulness is the one that was never broken. Very powerful, this willingness to be honest. And the fifth, not taking intoxicants or drugs that cloud the mind and lead to heedlessness. Again, that seems obvious. as as Sayadaw Upandita says, you know, once you break the fifth precept and take intoxicants, it's so much easier then to mess up all the other four. But just watching that in ourselves, more out in life than here. I just want to um, end by reading a short thing about how powerful this practice of working with the precepts can be from Thich Han. that it becomes really moving from a sense of should perhaps or perhaps a dry doing what seems like it might be helpful in order to move the meditation along comes much much more from an inner understanding from a movement of the heart and then the practice of Sila is also a very powerful purification. Purification of action. And it really is in this time the strong and necessary foundation for the deepening of our meditation practice. But it's much, much more than that. This is kind of like a strong statement of the potential of our work with Sila. In summary, it could be said that these precepts issue a clarion call of emptiness and non-ego in action. Each precept is permeated with the understanding that concepts, thoughts, and actions are inherently impermanent and insubstantial. Each precept enjoins a form of moral action that is based on non-separation and an aware state of compassion. Not holding on to a notion of self, we are invited to engage ourselves courageously in the world and with discriminating awareness to undertake the task of liberating all sentient beings." It can be a very powerful practice. Let's just sit for a minute or two.